0: Changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Aileen Benveniste, a PhD graduate from the class of 2021. She's currently at Harvard Center for the Environment as a postdoctoral fellow. Her work is centered on climate change policy, particularly as it relates to human migration and inequality. During the Paris Agreement year, she served as a research scientist and project manager of a scientific advisory group to the French climate negotiation team. Today, we talk about global climate change challenges and being a female in academia. She's also the first PhD graduate I've interviewed on this show, and I'm happy to welcome her today. So I want to kick off our discussion with something that I've been asking everyone on this show, and it sort of starts us off running, but we're living in this era where there are so many issues to tackle. And I'm curious from where you sit, what you think is the most pressing issue facing us today?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for, thanks for this, this question. It's a little bit daunting. Obviously, given the nature of my work, I'm going to say climate change, which is something I've been working on really for the entirety of my career. The reason I think climate change is such uh, an important and pressing issue is that is that it really affects every other issue, which is not something very new to say. But it's really, I think for policymakers, it's really important to always have in mind that whatever issue people work on, they're going to have to, you know, look at it through the lens of climate change at some point, one way or another, because we really expect it to, to affect pretty really every other policy area. And that's something that, to me, makes this issue so, so pressing and so all in all.
0: So, I'm familiar with your work because we've worked together before on some of your research papers, but could you sort of summarize what you study?
1: Basically, the entirety of my work is focused on climate change policy, and I've been looking at it really from a kind of a transboundary international perspective. The two main angles that I'm looking at it one is looking at it really through the lens of equity, and in particular, as related to effects of climate change on human migration, which is really directly a matter of equity in a lot of ways. Uh, You know, who is allowed to move, who isn't, who is able to afford it, how people are treated when they do and when they don't, et cetera. Um, And the other angle that I've been tackling is this question of kind of efficacy in implementing uh, climate change policies and what we can do at the international level uh, to make things more efficient in the sense of to encourage as much as possible.
0: Do you think it's possible to have such a coordinated response in some ways to climate change internationally?
1: <laughs> it's kind of, a you know, obviously a yes and no question. No, because, you know, I was born in 89 and since then, the, there hasn't been much progress in a lot of ways on the international climate from. I'm pretty much as old as the climate regime. And where we are today, I have a PhD and was still not really able to solve that thing. So, you know, uh, it's taking really a long time. Uh, On the other hand, I do see, I do see a lot of progress that has been made in recent years. And I think, unfortunately, one of the reasons for that is because climate change has become more visible, because a lot of its impacts are now more visible to people. Uh, Even in the past few years, in a place like the US, I think it has become more, you know, current, really more present to people's minds, you know, when they look at wildfires, when they look at, you know, back to back hurricanes and floodings and that kind of stuff, that keeps it much more present in people's mind, much, you know, much more so than a few years ago, where people were kind of seeing as a more abstract matter. You know.
0: That's true. I think, you know, when the skies are glowing in New Jersey from a wildfire in California, it's sort of a little bit of a wake up call that you don't expect. Um, I'm curious what you think, what you thought of COP26 and uh, just sort of, you know, for those unfamiliar, maybe give us a sense of what that is and what the goal was and what the outcome was.
1: Yes, yeah, so the COPs are acronyms for conferences of parties, and the parties are the uh, close to 200 countries who are part of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which has been meeting every year since 1992, and that's the overall international regime to deal with climate change. What COP26 was, was the 26th meeting that happened, what was it, November in Glasgow, this year in Scotland. And uh basically, we're in the face of the climate regime right now, where um, the regime is now governed by the Paris Agreement, which is the last agreement that has been signed in 2015. And basically, a lot of the discussions are taking place in terms of how to implement this agreement, which is kind of a framework, and a lot of it still needed to be negotiated. And that's why, you know, people were saying Paris is a success, Paris is a success, but actually... We still didn't know because a lot of what would make it a success still hadn't been decided. And so what happened in Glasgow was that a few of those things were decided. In some ways, uh, there were some pretty positive outcomes about what was decided in terms of, you know, technical aspects, such as how you can ensure that countries are kind of transparent in what they say they do and how they report it, which is uh, really quite important. Some other things were not as incredibly... Uh, you know, successful as some people would have liked, you know, there was some, you know, positive and some kind of negative things about, about this cup specifically. I think in general, when each time a COP happens, uh, there is a lot of work to be done, I think, for the general public to make clear what we can expect from it and what really international agreements are able to do in the first place, you know, cannot not try to, have a clear sense of what, you know, how to set expectations.
0: That's such a good point, because I think a lot of people heard that the conference was going on, but probably didn't really understand what the goals were, what the outcomes could be. Um, I heard a lot of criticism about why do you have to have this conference where you're using, you know, using fossil fuels to get there and those sorts of things. So I appreciate your perspective on that. I would like to dive just a little bit deeper on climate migration for a moment. I'm hoping you could maybe walk our listeners through such an example of that, something that your work has shown. I'm actually working right now on a paper with Michael Oppenheimer, who is your advisor on uh, climate migration patterns in South Africa, which has been kind of interesting. But maybe you could just give us an example of an area you studied and what you found.
1: Yeah, so... I haven't been as much focusing on a specific geographic area. I've been looking a lot at the global level. One of the angles that I've been uh, studying quite a bit, and that I think is not talked about enough from you know for policy making, is the fact that people have in mind this vision that damage is going to induce this kind of huge surge of migrants, whether across borders or within countries. And um, within countries, it's definitely true that we expect to see quite a bit more internal migration. But another thing that is not as much talked about is that we also expect to see uh, an increasing number of people who would like to move but cannot afford to do so anymore with climate change. Because something that people perhaps don't necessarily consider when they think about this issue is that migration is costly. And because climate change already has and is expected to, to decrease resources, in particular in some of the most um, deprived communities already, we actually expect also to see an increasing number of people who would like to move but cannot afford to do so. And those communities really, I mean, if you think about it through the policy lens, it, it becomes quite, quite obvious that there is a huge uh, need here for, for policies to, to, to help those communities in particular, which uh, who tend to be much less visible just because they're not on the move. And at the international level, it's really very true that all the frameworks that have been put in place in recent years exclusively focus on those who move, but not on those who don't. Um, and I think there is a big you know, gap here in terms of what needs to be done.
0: I'm not necessarily asking for policy recommendations, but what does a policy look like that helps people like that to you?
1: It can, it can look like very different things depending on the needs of the community. And that's where, you know, the really the bottom-up approach becomes very, very important. Uh, it can look like, you know, uh, just financial transfers so that people can adapt wherever they are. You know, if it means, you know, being able to have enough funds to switch crops uh, wherever they are, or if it means, you know, having enough funds to construct some kind of infrastructure setting that helps protect a little bit from, whatever impacts they're, they're facing where they are. Migration is very often a, a source of you know, diversification of income and sending back remittances in a lot of cases is actually quite costly. Um, and so one of the policies that could help could be lower those costs, for instance. So it can look like a, very, you know, a lot of different things. And again, uh, the bottom-up perspective here is, is really important to make sure that uh, the needs of the communities are actually answered.
0: Those are great examples, and I was also thinking about recent work that I was looking at that also studied how you know people work in other areas and then they go home and that and climate it, climate is affecting that as well, right yes. that ability to move to work in another place and come back home. Yes. so what's the solution for people like like that so, sort of some of these ideas you just shared?
1: Yeah, so I mean it's always you know the, the way people end up deciding to move or not and you know to come back or not. Um, it's always a mix of what happens on the environmental front if they are directly exposed to that, to that, but it's also very much a mix of what happens from an economic perspective, where they came from and where they go, you know, what does the work situation look like? It also very much depends on the policies that are put in place. For instance, you know, if you talk to Professor Doug Massey, who is at at Princeton, Uh, One of his big topics of research uh, looks at migration from Mexico to the U.S., and one of the big trends that we have seen in the past years and decades is that um, return migration has decreased because it's become much more difficult to go to the U.S., so the people who go actually don't come back, whereas before, there was a huge back and forth, and now you see much more permanent migration rather than cycling migration because the border policies have changed so much.
0: No, I just enjoy exploring these topics with an expert. So, um, you know, I'm kind of curious along those lines, because we're talking a lot about policy and, you know, you're obviously an academic and this is a little bit more abstract, but I'm curious what it's sort of like to move between those spaces of academia and policy. I mean, is there particular challenges to making the shift between the two?
1: Yes and no. Um, First of all, I have to say that So I worked for a few years before starting my PhD. And some of those years uh, happened in in some kind of policy positions. And that was really, really helpful for me to do research that I want to have, you know, some kind of policy oriented research. And having had some practical experience, I think uh, was pretty invaluable for me. And that's the case for a lot of uh, PhD students at STIA. The link between, you know, academia and policy, Varies a lot from one country to the next, and I must say, that's one of the things that I enjoy a lot in the US is that it feels much easier uh, to have links between those two communities than it did back in France, which is where I'm from.
0: I was gonna say, um, I'm curious what, what it was like to work with a leading climate scientist like Michael Oppenheimer.
1: No, oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm obviously very biased, so it. <laughs> I'm a very big fan of Michael. It's just, you know, so it's funny because I I hadn't even heard of him when I applied. I just realized, I I looked at the program and it seemed interesting. And I looked at his research and I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And then I started talking to people around me and they're like, oh, Michael Oppenheimer. And that's when I realized that he was such a big name. Um, Michael is really, I think his perspective is invaluable to students in particular because he has such a big picture mindset and he's able to bring you know perspective on any kind of question that you're trying to ask and making sure that uh, you are making it policy relevant that it's actually something that you should spend time working on um that has been really really invaluable it's also kind of nice because sometimes you know he gets so busy with like giving testimonies to congress and whatnot and then Uh, When he was teaching his course and I was teaching for him, I had to step up and give a few lectures because he just wasn't around for all of those big things. So it kind of gave up as well. Um, Yeah,
0: that's great. I I was fortunate to sit in on sort of a live broadcast from COP26 with um, the Princeton delegate who was there. Were you on that call?
1: Uh, I was Mm -hmm. on one of those two calls. Yeah,
0: that's right. And I just thought it was so cool that Michael was able to say, you know, here's what you should do, here's how you should network, you know, talk to this media member. And I, I thought that practical hands-on advice was really useful.
1: A few of the peer professors, and in particular in the step, so a science, technology, and environmental policy um, program, a few of those professors have spent about like half of their career outside of academia. Actually, Michael, for instance, was at an environmental NGO for half his career. And so it gives them really a very practical perspective. And that makes it really helpful to, to again, bridge that gap between, between academia and policy.
0: This is actually a good segue because I wanted to hear more from you about what your Princeton experience was like as a PhD student, sort of what are some high points that, that you remember fondly and what would you tell others who maybe are thinking about the program?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, overall, my experience, I had a blast. Really, I, I really did I knew some of it would be good coming in. There were other good sites that I wasn't aware of at all before coming in. I was not aware at all that I would get to spend so much time with the professional policy students. So the MPAs and the MPPs, that was such a huge source of, you know, learning for me, uh, just because the amount of policy experience in the room when we were taking classes, when we were, you know, listening to speakers and, and whatnot was really, really astonishing to me. And so I learned a lot just from listening to my classmates. Obviously, I knew I would get to work with some of the best scientists on this topic because it's Princeton and because you know what you're getting into in that way. And I wasn't disappointed in that at all. It was really great. But the more uh, practical exposure to, to the policy world through the other students was something that I had not anticipated. And it yeah, I learned so much from from them, and so I'm really grateful for that side, for sure.
0: That's true because the PhD cohort is pretty small. There's like what ten people in your cohort, something like that.
1: Yeah, not even in my cohort, it was three of us, so it was very. Oh wow.
0: <laughs> okay, and then the MPAs and MPPs make up about oh gosh, like a hundred people or more, or maybe less. So that is that is sort of a wealth of knowledge you're getting, and they have different experiences too. Um, I'm curious. Uh, from where I sit, people always make it look like these PhDs—you know—they get their PhDs and they move on. And but it has to be, I'm sure, at moments challenging. Did any challenges come up for you during those many years?
1: <laughs> yes, it it is definitely challenging. A lot of it can be uh, a bit lonely sometimes, just because you know you are the one who have to come up with your own questions you want to answer, and then you have to work on them. The loneliness of The work itself, even if I was surrounded by friends all the time, uh, made it quite challenging. I mean, just it's such a long process. And because of the nature of the research process, it takes a very long time before you figure out whether what you do is any good at all. As in like up until my fourth or fifth year, I had no idea whether what I was producing was good or not. And it's usual. And that to me was challenging because I was used to a professional environment when you get feedback much more quickly than that. And just because of the timeline of research, it doesn't happen that way. And so that specifically was pretty challenging to me. I think in general, I mean, you see it around Princeton is not uh, a different place from other universities on that front. The, the, the mental health challenges that, co- challenges that come from that pace of work and that structure of work can be difficult sometimes. And that's something that I tried. I knew that going in. And that's something that I try to be extremely mindful of and making sure to to check in very regularly um, because it can happen very, I mean, it can happen very quickly just because of, of the nature of the work that's a little bit different from what I was used to.
0: Plus, you know, you're a little isolated as a PhD student and then you were there during part of the pandemic, right?
1: A little bit. Yes. Fortunately, the research activity is something that you can do partly online, depending on what work and so the community was really good at meeting regularly on zoom obviously it's not the same but in some ways it was probably harder for the people who started
0: at that point so true very true isolating experience for all of us you know um i want to ask about the question about being a female mm-hmm. academic i guess you know i feel like when you See a lot of scientists, it's sort of male dominated. It's changing a lot. It's changed a lot in my lifetime. But I'm curious, you know, what the experience is like has been like for you being a a woman in academia, a woman in academia in the US versus France.
1: Quite frankly, one of the reasons I wanted to get a PhD was because I felt I wasn't being taken seriously. But I had a master's degree before coming in, as a lot of us do when we come into the PhD program. Uh, But I still felt like I'm a woman. I'm pretty short. I have a pretty high-pitched voice. I cannot look younger than my age, and it was very difficult in my professional environment in Europe to feel that I was being taken seriously and not being asked to, you know, get coffee pretty regularly and that kind of stuff. So, part of why I wanted to get the PhD, honestly, was just to kind of gain some credibility by, you know, um, because that degree is kind of more visible than the rest. Maybe I don't know if people. You know, use the term doctor and the whatnot. And it felt that it would be helpful for me. Obviously, it wasn't the only reason. Don't go into a five-year enterprise just for that reason. <laughs> right. Probably not a good idea, but part of it honestly was that for me, because I felt that yeah, I needed I needed the credibility to be able to have any impact at all. The woman in academia, I think, was much harder for me in France than it was in the US. Actually, I felt in the US that it was easier. Again, I I don't want to speak for everybody's experience and I'm not diminishing at all, you know, the, the, the problems that are definitely evident in a lot of universities. I think the way the PhD program is set up at SPIA makes it not as bad as in other fields. You know, in natural sciences, you apply with one PhD advisor and then that one advisor often is your source of funding. And then it's that one professor you work with who is, you know, the key to your whichever job you might get at the end, was given the way the policy PhD is structured, you have one advisor, but you're often very encouraged to work with a range of different professors. Your funding doesn't come through one person. And so it feels that the power dynamics is set up in a way that makes the situation a little, you know, the environment a little more, you know, conducive to. to less risky situation, I might
0: say. That makes sense. Cause I think one thing people who have not pursued PhDs don't realize is how much, how much influence your advisor has over your entire trajectory. Right.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that is where we students of Michael <laughs> feel very fortunate, I think.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, we are just about out of time, but I did want to ask you, cause we like to sort of end this show with advice for the next generation. So, what sort of tips, tricks, words of wisdom would you offer for
1: the PhD process in particular? I want to say making sure that you know yourself, because research is such an involved activity. Where often, you know, you're pushing your your brand, like your name, is basically what you're advertising, what you're, you know, what you're making your career out of, and so it feels very personal sometimes. And I think making sure that you know yourself, you know your boundaries, you know why you're doing it, and you know you make sure that you can detach your work from who you are as a person, uh, I think is really, really important to, to be mindful of during the whole time of your graduate studies and of your career. That's something that I keep trying to remind myself of.
0: It's true, and it's true probably beyond the PhD in a lot of professions. I think that's great advice. Aylin, it has been wonderful catching up with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Changemakers. Thank you, Rose. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.